With the 25th pick in the NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select. You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. No, there's no April Fool's jokes or anything along that nature. This is the Journey to the Draft podcast. Chris McPherson, joined alongside Fran Duffy. And uh, we are just a few weeks away, Fran. It's the month of April. It, it is. is draft month. So how, how anxious, how excited are you knowing that the end of the finish line for the 2019 draft selection process is almost here? It is exciting. You know, this is a fun time of year. You know, a lot of the evaluations are already in the books, obviously. Uh, so now it's just a matter of, you know, kind of looking around. Do you want to try and finish up some prospects? We've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. You know, I've been trying to make my rounds uh, through guys either that I haven't seen or that I wanted to get a second look at. I've been kind of going on like back and forth each day like okay today I'll, I'll watch new guys tomorrow I'll do guys that I've seen more of, or seen before and I want to continue to watch more of but let me uh, let me follow up on yes, that real quick go ahead. how do you just determine which players you want is it do you see someone had a great pro day do you see someone on draft twitter kind of uh, you know, buzzing about someone, and it's like, all right, maybe I need to do a pass. How, how do you go about which guys you're looking at? Here? It's it's a little bit of both of those, and then also just guys that you know, like I had never watched Kingsley Kiki from Texas A&M. Uh, mm. You know, hadn't watched him. He was at the Senior Bowl. He was a late addition to the Senior Bowl because he was an underclassman. So I didn't get to him before our trip to Mobile, uh, and so. When I had the opportunity this morning, I was like, "Oh, I'll go watch some Kingsley Kiki and see what, see what he can do." Um, you know, you're starting to see his name pop up, uh, you know, around the league. So, wanted to watch him. So that's kind of how I go about it. Is all right, you know, let's let's take one day. These will be new. This will be a day for new players. Tomorrow will be a day for uh, for guys that I want to make a second pass through. Where are you? And maybe you don't have this off the top of your head, database wise. How many players have you looked at Ooh. to this point? Uh, it's. Are we about three hundred. We're, yeah. we're in a yeah, three hundred. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Is there, I don't have the exact number. I'll I'll tell you next week. Is there a record, and is that within Ooh. reach? There is a record. I don't know the record. Obviously, yeah, there is a record. I'll uh, I'll I'll get back to you. We'll, we'll do that for next week. We'll All put right. that. We'll, we'll jot that down uh, for next little, week. Extra, extra juice there. So great show for you as always. Special thanks to Melissa Kelly, who's behind the glass, behind the camera, for making this happen. We appreciate all the comments, the ratings, the reviews that you leave on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume our podcasts. Our Mister Relevant this week. Fun conversation with Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. I, I wanted to have an episode where we talked a little bit about analytics, and I obviously. Pro Football Focus does a great job of marrying that and the scouting. So I want to get into a little bit of the process. And they just released their top 50 big board, which you can go read. So definitely would be some great fodder for a debate right there. Our pick six. Okay. So the Draft Network done a lot of great work throughout draft season. And they put together this mock draft simulator, which people on, on draft Twitter, social media are buzzing about. So we decided to go through and have the simulator generate a couple mock draft options for the Eagles. Now, we're not going to do full seven-round mocks, but we'll do first couple days, first three selections. Yeah, and Three picks. Three picks and, and see see who the Eagles are, are selecting and kind of dissect the possible possibilities there for the Eagles uh, in the upcoming draft. Our unofficial visit is with Chris Lindstrom. I had a chance to catch up with the Boston College Guard uh, prospect at the Senior Bowl. But as we do each and every week, Fran... Of course, we're going to get into the draft mailbag. We'll save that for last, but we kick things off with yet another addition, and this is going to be a juicy one, a gossip-filled draft buzz courtesy of Tony Pauline from DraftAnalyst.com. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. You know, these segments get better and better each week because this is when Tony shines. 
That's right. Tony Pauline, DraftAnalyst.com, joins us as he does each and every week here on the podcast for his draft buzz. And again, the best stuff comes out in the weeks leading up to the draft. And uh, what what is this month? It is April. We're a few weeks away. What is this time like for you, Tony? Any, anything big picture you want to start off with before we hit you here with some uh, different questions from around the draft world? Actually, you know, it kind of calms down. March is the big month with all the pro days because, you know, oftentimes we got, I've got six, seven, eight pro days uh, in a single day that I'm trying to cover, working the phones, wh- whatever it is, the live feed of the pro day. So March gets kind of crazy. The, the pro days tail off this week. Uh, I mean, we've got, what, uh, one or two today, and you've got Stanford with you tomorrow, which, kind of, which basically ends it up. Then you'll have a few individual pro days for guys who are injured. So it actually kind of calms down. It's just a matter of, you know, I'm going to hear all this information and get all this information. You've got to decide or decipher what's true and, and to what degree it's true. Um, so it's kind of a, it's not a guessing game, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, we'll figure it all out. Well, Tony, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, you know, we got some word late last week. Adam Schefter from ESPN uh, tweeted out that uh, Marquise Brown has now been uh, was has now been cleared to begin running. Obviously, he had that Liz Frank injury at the end of the college football season. Didn't participate at the combine. Do you anticipate that we're going to get a look at him? Is he going to be able to work out at all for teams before the draft, or do you think we're going to be relying solely off the film from Marquise Brown? I mean, he may do something as far as catching the ball, extending his hands, but I don't think you're going to see any real route running, which is what teams wanted. I mean, we know he's super fast. No one could stay with him downfield. He was constantly three or four steps behind defenders. He's a great deep threat. What you really wanted to see was his route running. You know, is he quick into breaks? Is he explosive? Does he run routes with good balance? Does he stay low exiting breaks and position himself to make the reception? I don't think you're going to see that. We may see some sort of partial workout where it's noted that, you know, he's, 75% 75% or something like that. I don't think that teams are going to uh, get the workout that they want. Now, where will he go? I still think he's going to go at the bottom of round one because he, as well as D.K. Metcalf and Paris Campbell, guys we'll talk about, have the one thing that's lacking in this year's wide receiver class, and that's speed. That's outright speed. That's vertical speed and home run hitting speed. So I think he's going to go late in round one. I could see the Oakland Raiders uh, using one of those picks, either the 24th or the 27th pick on uh, on Brown. I know they signed Antonio Brown, but they still have a you know still have need help at receiver, and, and they li- they've always liked that vertical offense. All right. So follow up on that. You mentioned Paris Campbell, Adam Schefter, adding a note that he is a projected first round pick. Haven't really seen his name in the mock draft. So you think that he's in that conversation to possibly go uh, somewhere in that frame? Teams really like Paris Campbell, or they don't like, or they're concerned about Paris Campbell. They love his athleticism. They love his build. They love his speed. They like the development that he showed from 2017 to 2018. Coming into the 2018 season, he was graded by scouting services as one of the top receivers uh, in the nation, top receiver prospects, and he really beat expectations. So they really like the development in his game. Now, there are some who say, well, you know what? He's just a fast guy on a team that had a lot of good receivers, which made it a lot easier for him. He really needs a lot of uh, work on his route running. He needs to show that he can run catching the ball while he's running laterally as opposed to just down the field. So there is that concern that he's not as developed as he should, which doesn't warrant a first-round pick. I still think he's very likely to end up in the bottom half of round one. 
Well, Tony, one uh, one team that you've connected uh, Paris Campbell to has been the Baltimore Ravens as a, as a possibility there for him in the first round. And you kind of named, uh, named him as kind of a backup option for them with the primary target being DK Metcalf uh, if he were to fall to the Baltimore Ravens. And Metcalf uh, participated in his pro day on Friday, improved on those shuttle times uh, at the pro day that he had at the Combine. Look, the, the, the numbers still weren't like outstanding, but they were a little bit better, so that, uh, you see a little bit of improvement there. Do you think those improved shuttle times how much are they moving the needle with his draft stock are we still kind of looking at DK Metcalf as a lock for round one lock of top half of round one where do you see his stock right now what range do you think he goes off the board yeah I mean it could be as early as the Washington Redskins like I said the Baltimore Ravens like him if the Ravens don't get him I'm told their backup plan is Paris Campbell Uh, the bottom line as far as far as my opinion is concerned is he's going to be overdrafted you know he's a big strong fast guy that runs incredibly well vertically and gets vertical in the air to basically high point the ball over defenders, but he's still very raw. He's even more raw than Paris Campbell is. Paris Campbell's got a lot of back, uh, a lot of football in his background. You know, DK Metcalf had really one outstanding year, which was cut short by a neck injury. I have not heard anything bad about the neck injury yet, but if there if there are red flags, this is about the time where it's going to start to pop up. You know, he kind of reminds me of Perriman, the kid that the Ravens took a couple of years ago out of Central Florida, where, where people were just, you, you know, gobsmacked, and they, they were just cross-eyed with the incredible measurables, the great speed, the athleticism, and they kind of put the fact that he was a very marginal receiver to the side, and, and he was selected in the first round, never panned out for the Ravens, has done some good things when he got picked up by the Browns, but still, I, I think Metcalf is, you know, He's got he's your prototypical boomer bust type prospect. The athleticism, the size, the speed means that the sky is the limit, but he just needs so much work on every part of his game. He's going to go around one. I still think that, and I think it's because of the overall weak class of receivers this year. I still think that's a little bit early. We'll stay with that Ole Miss Pro Day, Tony. You, you had mentioned uh, Dawson Knox. We've talked about him in the past before, uh, a player that helped himself in his pro day. I believe he ran 4-5-1 uh, on Friday morning. Uh, Jim Nagy, our friend from the, from the Senior Bowl executive director, said he tweeted out that he thinks Dawson Knox should be in the round one mix. Where have you kind of heard uh, the junior tight end's name being thrown around in terms of his round value at this point in the process? I've not heard, I've not heard uh, round one. He ran a four. He ran times from anywhere from four five one to four five seven seconds. Ran an exceptional three cone time, and basically, it's just an extension of what I heard and reported from the Senior Bowl. There are a lot of teams that are just very excited about Dawson Knox's upside potential and his athletic ability. They felt that the situation at, uh, at Mississippi where they had so many terrific receivers, they had a quarterback who liked to throw it down the field, kind of left Dawson Knox on the outside looking in as far as the offensive game plan is concerned, which led to his pedestrian production numbers. I think he had, what, 15 receptions last year. I don't think you can draft a guy with that type of production in round one, but teams love his upside. They think he's a great athlete that they can develop into a good tight end. I had a conversation with someone at the Senior Bowl who told me we were talking about him versus Jay Sternberger. They told me, and I was surprised at the time, that they liked Dawson Knox better than Jay Sternberger because Knox was, such a, uh, was so much of a better athlete, they think that he's going to be a better tight end two or three years down the road. So when you take Dawson Knox early, and when I say early, he's going to land somewhere probably in the bottom half of round two, it's, you have to understand that he may not have a lot of production as a rookie. He, you know, he still has a lot of football to learn, and it may take two or three years to harvest that talent. 
All right, sticking with pro days, let's go to Houston. Ed Oliver didn't do all the timing drills at the combine. He did them at his pro day and posted some ridiculous numbers, which we all expected, you know, with his uh, size and, you know, athletic profile. Uh, what do you think? Because there's been so much discussion through this draft process about how high he'll go, how he'll potentially slip in the draft. What do you think is the ideal range for Ed Oliver to be selected in this year's draft? Yeah, too much discussion as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Ed, he's, uh, Ed Oliver is really the, the definition of paralysis by overanalysis, which is a term that we've used for a while in the uh, in draft lore. Uh, a guy who was considered the first pick of the draft back in August, and now you know we've talked about it on this podcast. Some people think he's a late first round pick. I think the earliest that he goes is either Detroit with the eighth selection or Buffalo with the ninth selection. I don't think he gets past Atlanta at 14. I do still think he's going to be a top-12 selection, but you know, if for some reason he starts to fall, I just don't see him getting past Atlanta. They need defensive tackle help. You know, They have a creative, defensive-minded uh, coach who would love to use Ed Oliver uh, in a variety of ways, up front on the defensive line, maybe even occasionally standing up. Uh, he's that type of athlete, doesn't have the great size, but remember, he's a young guy, so he still has a, a bit of physical maturity. His body still has to fill out. Uh, I thought he was overrated coming into the season, and I think thoughts of or, or talk of him being a bottom half of round one guy uh, right now is just as ridiculous. Tony, uh, on Monday, Taylor Rapp, the safety from Washington, made headlines uh, for a negative reason. Around 474 at his pro day was the reported time. Uh, how does that affect him? Where, where are we looking at now stock-wise for, uh, for Taylor Rapp? It definitely knocks him out of round one. I, I think there's no chance. I thought maybe the Kansas City Chiefs could take him around one. I don't think that's going to happen now. Uh, I, I still think he's going to be a second-round choice. Basically what it does is this. is You're more concerned now about his ball skills than you were before. You know, watch Taylor Rapp. He's definitely a guy who can play downhill when the action is in front of him. A, a terrific box sort of safety the way Jamal Adams of the New York Jets is. Gets out to the sideline. Hard hitter. Terrific against the run. But that speed means that, number one, he's not going to be a free safety. Number two, you're going to have to uh, be very leery of lining him up over a slot receiver if you want your safeties to cover uh, receivers in nickel packages. So what I think it does is it knocks him out of round one. I still think he's going to be a second-round uh, selection. He's a high-character guy. He's known for his leadership on the field. Uh, a lot of people like him a lot. Uh, you know, he just has some physical limitations. So if you're looking for a, a box safety, a strong safety, a, a zone type of safety, I, I think there's no issues with taking Taylor Rapp in round two. All right, Tony, a, a player whose draft stock has plummeted through the pre-draft process, and that's Ja'Kai Polite, at least the perception that is that it has throughout the pre-draft process, edge rusher out of Florida. However, Matt Miller from Bleacher Report says multiple team scouts – insists that his talent is too good, this is the quote here, too good to overlook late in the first round, even after everything from the combine testing to, you know, the interview that he had with the media to the reports about his meetings behind the scenes with teams, all that combined, do you think there's still a chance that he'll go in the bottom of the first round? During, right after the Florida Pro Day, what I had reported was there were some teams that still had a first-round grade on uh, Ja'Kai Polite, but the, the number of those teams that had the first-round grad on them were, were consistently shrinking. Um, you know, now the fact is this is uh, he hurt his hamstring or he's had a hamstring issue since before the combine, in large part, as I reported, because he put on 20 pounds of muscles. Teams were concerned about his size. 
I don't think he's a first-rounder. He is a terrific uh, pass rusher. What are you going to do with him, though? Are, are you going to line him up at defensive end as a one-gap uh, end off the edge? Do you stand him up over tackle as a 3-4 outside linebacker, a position he's never really uh, played at, he really never stood up over tackle at Florida? So I, I think it's more of a scheme and a system fit. I don't think he's going to go in round one. I've, I've read reports where people saying he's going to go in the fifth round. I think that's kind of crazy. I still think, you know, because he is a terrific pass rusher, and pass rushers are in high commodity to come draft time. I still think he's going to land somewhere in day two of the draft. Tony, Rich Semini from ESPN.com had reported that the Jets would be, quote, all ears to move down out of the number three spot. I know that was something that you had reported in the past as well. Uh, he had cited um, you know, the potential just to move down. You had talked about potentially for a corner uh, that they would want to add another cover man for Greg Williams. I would think a pass rusher would be in play since they missed out on Anthony Barr. Uh, if they do make a move down, who do you think that their eyes would be set on if they were able to, to make that kind of deal? Well, I, I think you've got to look at the Giants or a team that wants to assure themselves of Dwayne Haskins. This is the assumption that Ty, uh, Kyler Murray is going to be the first player off the board, which I think we reasonably can say that that's going to happen. So it, it, it's a team that wants to hop in front of the uh, Oakland Raiders to make sure that they get Dwayne Haskins. Now, I think the problem that the Jets have is, is multifaceted. Number one, they needed to come out of free agency with a pass rusher and a starting center. They did neither. Uh, you know, the Anthony Barr situation, they couldn't help that. But the fact is, is, was Anthony Barr the best pass rusher available to them? And they really were kind of left out in the woods uh, with a pass rusher. I think the other problem is, is you know, the San Francisco uh, 49ers did a good job setting themselves up in free agency by getting the pass rusher that they need and trading for D. Ford. So I think, as I reported on this podcast back in January, the Niners, I think, will definitely look to trade down because, you know, they've gone so heavy on the defensive line three of the last four years. They got D. Ford. They need cornerbacks. They need other position players. So I think the uh, Niners may be willing to trade down at a price that's not that steep. Uh, the Jets have to trade down at this point in time. I think the uh, Niners would like to trade down. Uh, we'll have to see how it pans out. All right, Tony, last thing as we do each and every week here is the mock draft roundup. And Eric Galco from Optimum Scouting uh, un- unveiled his first mock draft of the season on April 1st and uh, no fools here he goes with Chris Lindstrom the guard from Boston College for the team at number 25 overall your thoughts on that selection uh, well uh, you know we're, you're opening yourself up with the joke of the April Fool's joke there so I'll just leave that alone because I like Eric but uh, as far as I'm concerned that's way too early for Chris Lindstrom I like Chris Lindstrom I've been on him for uh, more than two years when he was a tackle at Boston College I just don't think he's first round talent I think he's more of a mid-second-round choice. If the Eagles really like him, I think it's a situation where maybe they trade down, as they did last year, uh, to select uh, uh, Chris Lindstrom. Uh, Guys checked off all the boxes. He's a terrific player on film. He plays multiple positions. He tested much better than anybody expected at the Combine. Looked great during uh, pro day workout. So I I just don't think it adds up, number one, to him being a first-round prospect Plus, you have to add in all the amount of defensive linemen that are going to find their way uh, into round one. Uh, I think it would be very tough for Chris Lindstrom to end up in the first frame. We're going to hear from Chris Lindstrom later on in our unofficial visit. You can check out more of Tony's work at draftanalyst.com as well as on Twitter at Tony Paulian. Tony, thanks as always. And uh, up next, pick six. We're going to go through six mock draft simulations for the Eagles with their first three selections in the 2019 NFL Draft. Now it's time for Pick 6. 
And very interesting that we'll hear from Chris Lidstrom later on in the show in our unofficial visit, of course, there with the mock draft selection, him being there at number 25 for the Eagles to be a very intriguing pick, especially with the way the Eagles have already fortified the offensive line by bringing back Jason Pierce and extending Jason Kelsey and Isaac Samuel this offseason. All right, so pick six this week. Okay, so we talked at the top of the show about the draft network and this mock draft simulator, which is a lot of fun just to play around with. And you see everyone on Twitter like, here's my seven-round mock for this team. Here's my seven-round mock for this team. You know, what do you guys all think? It's it's great way to pass the time as we're leading up to a draft. So we said, what if we allowed the Draft Network mock simulator to spit out a few, you know, possibilities for the Eagles? Sure. So there's two ways to approach this. Okay. So first and foremost, before we get through the six situations, possibilities here for the Eagles, um, we didn't make the selections. It's strictly random, selected by computer the generation. Computer yes, computer generation. You can do one of two ways. So there's the draft network prediction board, okay. which is kind of how they think the draft is going to go. So ahead. using their rankings. Well, this is not their rankings. Okay, it's separate from the. It's actually more of where they think players are going to go. Okay, got it. Then there is. Another three that we have here that are based on their rankings. Got it. So okay. Separate. Okay. It's sort of like I think Daniel Jeremiah says, you know, my big board is what I see, but my mock draft is what I hear. Sure. Okay. Great way to dissect like it. it. So, so the first three here are based off the prediction board. Who they think players are going to go in certain spots and who would be available at these selections. So again, we're doing the first three selections for the Eagles: number twenty-five in the first round, and then fifty-three and fifty-seven in the second round. Mock number one here goes, and this is, again, even with the addition of Jordan Howard here, Josh Jacobs, number 25, the Ole Miss tackle Greg Little to start off, and then Ben Banigou. Is that how we're going to go with pronunciation? I think Banigou. Banigou. Okay. I forget who brought it up on someone, Twitter. Someone so. mentioned, yes. Yes. So we'll go with Banigou. That'll be the official pronunciation there here on Jury into the Draft. So your top three selections there, Eagles go running back, offensive line, and defensive ed, edge rusher, first three picks. Yeah, so I think when you look at those three, you know, you have Josh Jacobs, obviously, is, it seems to be the consensus number one running back in the in this draft. Uh, obviously, is able to be the total package, you know, with his athletic skill set, uh, his ability to win on third down, both as a pass catcher and as a blocker, got a lot better as a blocker throughout the course of his final season there uh, at the capstone, and then also his ability on special teams. I mean, he's returned kicks, but also as a core special teams guy. I know, I know watching them in years past, you would see him throw big blocks and special teams on returns for other guys. So, you know, uh, Josh Jacobs is a really intriguing player. Could be there. Could be at 25. Could also go off forward before that. So I think of these, the guys that we'll talk about, um, you know, for the, this predictive mock, he's the one guy I'm like, all right, I, I wonder if he will make it to 25. Interesting. Okay. Consensus, the top running back in this year's draft class. Second selection there, Greg Little, the tackle from Ole Miss. Yeah, a player that some people thought was going to be a first-round pick coming into this whole process. You, you go back and you look at those you know, two early mock drafts back from last May, last June, last July. A lot of them had Greg Little as a, a top 10, top 12 pick. Um, you know, and that continued up through the fall. I don't know that it's necessarily going to go that way. I do think he's probably going to be more of a, a day two or a mid-round pick. Uh, but he's an intriguing player and a guy that I've liked on film going back uh, in the past and doing my film study on him. Mean, he, he is pretty intriguing, does need to get better in some certain areas. But uh, in round two, I think that, that, that there's some in- intrigue there. And at 57, Banigou is a, probably a draft crush of mine, I would say. I would say, say so, yes. Because, you know, we got to see him – the Senior Bowl, then followed up at the Combine, and just the athleticism. He looked fluid in the drills. It's, you know, to me, it's it's a good fit, especially because with all these picks, you know, people might say, 
Will they trade for Jordan Howard? Does that mean they're out of running back? No. They could still certainly add a running back. Offensive line? No. Still can definitely add depth and experience there. And then Banigou? No. Because I think across the board, the biggest thing is the Eagles don't have to force anything at this point. That's the biggest takeaway. So you can just add the best players available regardless of positions. But I think they hit three critical spots here. And we're going to talk about analytics later in the show. My guess is is that Ben Banigou is going to check a lot of boxes for the analytics community, both from an athleticism standpoint Mm -hmm. and then also from a production standpoint. uh, Was very, very productive over his two-year career with the Horned Frogs. All right, so simulation number two. Again, these are based off the Draft Network's prediction board. Okay, First pick... Nasir Adderley, popular mock draft selection for the Eagles out of Delaware, local kid at 25. And then second round, Charles Amenahu, who was a, a little, little Twitter beef. Oh, well, I missed this. Cody Ford. Really? Going back. Oh, you Whoa, missed this one. Oh, nice. Oh, it's, it's a pretty good one. Some Big 12 on Big 12 well, prime. Oh, bet, better believe it there. Okay, that's a good one. And Jalen Ferguson out of Louisiana Tech. Okay. Wow, so d- double dip there on the uh, the D-line. oversized edge rushers. You know, both guys I think are very similar. I'll start with Omenahu and Ferguson. I think they're similar certainly in stature, uh, you know, the way that they're built, the way that they win. Both guys are power leverage players. You know, they they win with heavy hands and their ability to collapse the pocket. Both guys can transition from speed to power. Both guys have inside-outside versatility to be able to slide inside as a defensive tackle and sub-package. So I think with both of those players, they're, uh, you know, you have a similar skill set. So if you chose to double dip there, you could see why. And then with Adderley, I think taking Adderley early, you know, it kind of takes the pressure off of him. You know, coming from a smaller school, he's not. It's kind of like Dallas Goddard, where he doesn't have to step into the situation right away and be the guy. He can work in in sub package, kind of be worked in, play special teams early, and then down the road, you figure out how he ultimately fits into your defense. All right, the third simulation here goes with Chauncey Gardner Johnson. Interesting. For the Eagles at number twenty-five, Omenahu again, top of the second round, 53, 53rd selection, and then Miles Sanders. That'll be a fan favorite, the running back of Penn State. Sure, and I think with Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, you could say the same thing, except with a little bit of a different twist, right? Obviously, he's not coming from a small school. He's coming from the University of Florida. You know, a ton of people go down and watch those guys play down in the swamp and throughout every SEC uh, game there. But with Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, he only played as a nickel corner last year. Now, I know he played different roles in the years prior, but if you want to envision him as a base package player down the road – now he's got time to grow into that role. He can come in early, play special teams again. Like I said with Adderley, he can play special teams. He can play in your sub package and then grow him into a base package role. It doesn't need to be thrown in right away. So I think that's the allure there with taking a guy like Chauncey Gardner-Johnson early. A man who we talked about previously. And then mm-hmm. Miles Sanders, uh, look, is a guy that I think when you're looking at all these running backs – he checks a lot of boxes. You know, I mean, he does a lot of things really well. Uh, maybe nothing great. Nothing. That's probably why he's a second-round pick as opposed to being a first-round pick. But ultimately, you look at Miles Sanders, you think the best football is ahead of him. All right, so now these last three simulations are, are going to be based off their big board. Their this is their rank. Their rank. So they, like, mesh them all together, or is it? can you pick by – Analyst, like, can you pick, you know, no, Kyle Krabs big board? It's a consensus. Or, got it. Okay. It's a consensus big board here. So, all right. So, mock number four. Okay, Nasir Adderley still goes in the first round. Now, we talk about double dipping along the defensive line once yep. again. This time with DeAndre Walker and Draymond Jones. DeAndre Walker is uh, a guy that I I 
I really like. You know, he's a, a very good football player, very versatile, can drop in coverage, made a lot of plays, moving in reverse and over his career with Georgia, but also a really violent uh, run defender, does a really good job setting the edge. He can get after the quarterback. He had a good game against Alabama, against Jonah Williams, uh, made a number of plays in that game. So I think when you look at DeAndre Walker, just a very well-rounded player, a really fun player to watch on film. And then Draymond Jones has been one of my favorites for a long time. To me, he's a first-round talent. Like, if, if he went you know, in the mid-second round, to me, that's a, this is a guy that you're getting a steal late, that late in the draft. Um, but he, he's a very intriguing player, pure three technique, can win upfield, good athlete, didn't test as well as I think I would have expected, but still a guy that can make plays in space. He chases plays to the sideline. He's a, a high-effort player. So uh, a guy that needs to get a little bit better against the run, and that's the big knock is can he get better at the point of attack. But Draymond Jones, a really intriguing player. Is he an example of a player who in this year's draft class – is going to get bumped down to the second round because of the plethora of talent on the defensive line. Most I mean, likely? somebody's going to, and yeah. that's the thing. Is like in this in this scenario, it's Draymond Jones. In another scenario, it could be uh, you know uh, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Simmons. It could be you know any of those guys that you're yeah. talking about. Oh, you know, uh, why, there's no way this guy's there. Well. Guess what? Somebody it happens will. every single year. Guys fall. That's why people will knock these mock draft simulators and say, "Oh, there's no way this player falls." Every year we say that. Oh, there's no way Laramie Tunsil's going to fall outside the top ten, and then Laramie Tunsil falls outside the well, top ten. Well, right, there's well, other things, but every year those kind of scenarios pop up. It's a good segue. Here we go. For this next scenario. I'm going to go backwards. Okay. I'm going to go backwards on this one. 57th pick, Juan Thornhill, safety out of Virginia. Favorite of both of ours. Yes, like him a lot. Miles Sanders. Talked about him already. Talked about it goes yep. before him. First round, number 25 overall. To the Philadelphia Eagles, defend alignment of the University of Michigan. Not Chase Winovich, Rashawn Gary. Yeah, I mean that's and that's what I mean is that every year there's always those kinds of scenarios. And you know, you see mock drafts, you look around now, there are mock drafts with Christian Wilkins available at 25, with Ed Oliver available at 25. Something like that is going. They they can't. Well, you and I have talked about this in the podcast before. They can't all go in the first twenty four picks. Like yeah. there's going to be a good player that falls. That you know we weren't we haven't talked about here on the show. That oh yeah, this is possible. Yeah, Rashawn Gary is one of those guys. I mean, he absolutely could fall to the Eagles at twenty five. Um, and if that's the case, you're betting on the upside. You know, a guy with his size and speed profile, very very explosive, uh, has the ability to win with power. He can defend the run. The flashes are very very good. He would fall to twenty five because of the consistency. The production wasn't always there. Uh, was a big-time recruit, was one of the top players in the country coming out of high school, uh, Paramus Catholic, I believe, in North Jersey. Um, So I think when you're looking at Rashawn Gary, the talent is all there, and that's what you're betting on. All right, last scenario here, not as crazy. We talked about Josh Jacobs already, goes 25. We talked about Thornhill. Uh, You didn't really give a scouting report. I mean, we've talked about him on the podcast before, but playmaking safety there. Ball hawk, former corner, uh, really accomplished player in the post, can come down and defend the run as well. Thornhill's a good player. High character and tested well in the combine as well. Uh, The last one here, very intriguing prospect. Was coached for his final season on campus by our good old friend Herm Edwards. Yep. Rennell Wren, defensive tackle. Of Arizona State. Great first step, and that's how he wins. We've talked about Rennell Wren going back to like early September on the show, and really when you talk about him, uh, th- his ability to wreck the play early is what sets him apart. I mean, he's got that quick first step, gets upfield. He was a nose tackle, and he just flew upfield to just wreck the run play. I mean, that, that was his game. Um, you know, the sack production wasn't always there with him. Uh, wasn't really super productive until this season. But you know, you look at his athletic profile, his ability, the, the splash plays are really really impressive. I've compared him in the past to Chris Jones. The, 
the, the defensive tackle from Mississippi State, went in the first round. I, the, a lot of the same positives and negatives with Jones. And I wasn't a big fan of Chris Jones mm-hmm. coming out. But I look at Renell Wren, I'm like, man, I can't make the same mistake twice. Like, you know, this this yeah. kid, I think, ha- has a lot of talent. It's always interesting. Why was it that you didn't like Jones, but he ended up succeeding? And then it's you want to, like you said, I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Right, exactly. But there's obviously some reason why Jones was able to succeed, and other guys who maybe were in that bill before weren't able to make that next step. Well, and that's when you get to the character of the off-field that of we don't course. have all the access to being on the outside, and that's, you know, Chris Jones comes in, he does all the right things, and now he is where he is. He's one of the best defensive tackles in the league. All right, so it's our pick six. A little mock draft simulator action, courtesy of the Draft Network. Now let's get into our Mr. Relevant. This is going to be a fun conversation with Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. It's time for Mr. Relevant. Really excited about this one, our Mr. Relevant, none other than one of the best, not, not just when it comes to college football, NFL, all across the board, Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Steve, and he's the senior analyst and director of video content. And Steve, the first question I have for you is I want to kind of have like a sort of an analytics discussion here, which obviously Pro Football Focus has been great at. And you unveiled your top 50 big board on Monday. How much do you do you weigh in the analytics and what you see with your eyes on the tape when putting the big board together? How, how much does one you know factor into the other? Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, we've uh, we've been doing the college game since since 2000, the 2015 draft, and we've learned a lot through the years. It's not we don't have an automated draft board uh, yet, so it's not purely data driven. So it does take a little bit of uh, eye test and interpretation of our grades and data. Um, but the foundation is certainly the fact that we uh, grade every single player on every play from a production standpoint, and we do think that's the biggest edge in all of player evaluation, the fact that we have uh, a data set on every single snap that these guys, these guys have played, and as our analytics team dives into the data more and more, we essentially base, we, we just find the most important parts of that data. So it's not as simple as taking PFF grade and just listing the players out and there's your draft board. It's why is Tyler Murray number one? Because he's good at the stuff that we've seen translate at the NFL level or, uh, you know, Nick Bosa. But, you know, we've seen our pass rush grades translate at the next level so we can trust uh, his data set a little bit stronger than, say, a cornerback's data set. So just learning the ins and outs and the nuances of each position, what translates at the next level, and then using a little bit of eye test and intelligence and, uh, you know, some critical factors making sure that these guys are going to translate at the next level and you don't necessarily have like a 210 pound you know edge defender who just happened to have a good college career knowing that that's going to be tough to translate at the next level you, you brought up a great point and leads me right into my next question you you mentioned you saw with with Kyler Murray and Nick Bosa what translates well to the next level are there certain stats or numbers that you've seen now that you have a couple of years with the college football database here that make that seamless transition going from college to NFL that you say that that number is a pretty good indicator of future success? Yeah, I mean, looking back at quarterbacks, we've had really good success just looking at uh, year-to-year quarterbacks who just perform well from a clean pocket and hit open throws. The, the two things that sound like the easiest parts of quarterback play, but because they happen the majority of the time and it separates the Tom Brady's from the Brock Osweiler's, so to speak, 
Um, so it's the most important component. It's the most stable component of quarterback play, and I think that's what you're really looking for uh, when you're trying to project. It's kind of like what baseball did where they said, hey, look, home runs, walks, and strikeouts. Those are the three things that hitters and pitchers control against each other. There's no defense involved there. The uh, NFL equivalent for quarterback is just hitting open throws from a clean pocket. So the guys that do that year over year are your best guys and then plays under pressure and plays throws into tight windows and a few other factors. They'll kind of fluctuate year to year, and usually the best guys will rise to the top there, but you find the best guys by figuring out what, what do they do in the most common situation. So that's what we found about quarterback play. And then as far as uh, pass rushing goes, I think the easiest pure PFF grade that we've seen translate to the next level is pass rushing. Uh, we have a ton of interactions at the college level, and they project what a guy's going to do at the NFL level. So we've seen Joey Bosa, Miles Garrett, Trey Flowers, Brady Jarrett, guys that had really successful, productive college careers getting after the quarterback, doing the same thing at the NFL level. And if guys are below a certain baseline, they've struggled no matter what their actual physical traits and measurables are. The production has always kind of trumped things for us when we're looking at uh, pass rush projection at the next level. Steve, you were on the show back in the fall, and you and I talked about Andy Isabella and everything that you guys liked about the UMass receiver. That carried through to your final big board. I know he, you guys are higher on him than most outlets. Are there other players that kind of fit that mold that you know that, you know, this, this is one of our guys this year that, that we're really kind of pounding the table for that maybe everyone else isn't at this point? Yeah, I mean, just starting at quarterback, I think we're going to be a little bit higher on Will Greer than most. We'll have, we have him at 24 on our draft board right now. Uh, Chase Winovich is a guy that, you know, the more we looked at him and his production through the years, we, we have him at 29 as a, a fringe first-round type of player. Um, I don't know if anybody else will have him higher. We have him higher than Rashawn Gary, who is, a, a, you know, a better athlete at Michigan, but Winovich was the better pure edge defender during their time there, so I think he'll project uh, pretty well at the next level. Those guys really stand out as our guys. It, it is funny because I do think the more we've done this, the, the more we're – not completely in line with uh, wisdom of the crowds, but we, you know, things are, there aren't as many egregious misses, I don't think, as far as our board versus others when it comes to uh, finding our uh, special guys that, that stand out. When you put this out on Twitter on, you know, April 1st, I'm sure a lot of people were responding. It's, is this April Fool's Day with some of the rankings? Steve, what were some of the ones that generated the most buzz in terms of positioning? You, you mentioned Winovich as possibly one of them, but were there others uh, that you maybe heard from in the draft Twitter community? Yeah, I should have mentioned Jerry Tillery, too. I mean, we have him at seven. Uh, he continues to move up our board. He had the uh, best pass rush grade in the nation, tied with Quinnen Williams last year. And Quinnen we have higher because he's, he's been a better overall player, or at least was last year. But Tillery continues to improve, and just getting after the quarterback is the most important part of uh, playing interior D-line. Tillery did it at a high level. Um, so we'll definitely be higher on him, I think, than most. A lot of people, yeah, they gave us the old, the old LOL on that one. Uh, just having Kyler Murray at number one because we're taking positional value into it. We think he has that top 10 quarterback type of potential, which um, from a value standpoint certainly trumps anything that a Nick Bosa or Quinnen Williams could bring to the table, even if those guys are better players. So we had to take positional value into it uh, just a little bit. And then the other question marks, why is Montez Sweat really low? Why are Rashawn Gary really low? They didn't make uh, Sweat at number 46, and uh, Gary is not in our top 50. Uh, we just have both of those guys as, you know, more second-round value type of players, you know, the guys that um, I, I'm not saying they're going to be bad, but I certainly don't want to be the team that's uh, putting my putting eggs into them, into that basket in the top 15 
so to speak. I just think there's too much risk involved. I want to, I want to follow up on, on Jerry Tillery real quick, Steve. And I, and I don't know if you have the information in front of you, but you know he was a player that really uh, caught my eye uh, coming into the season because of his ability to defend the run. I thought he was really violent against the run. Um, you know, I'm not sure how you guys graded him last year, but uh, where do you guys see him? I know he obviously took that big step this year as a pass rusher. That production went through the roof. But do you guys see him as a well-rounded enough player to uh, you know be able to defend the run at a high level as well? Yeah, I think he can. He's, he's got solid defensive run grades. Let me see if I can uh, pull it up as, we're, as I'm speaking here. Uh, certainly pass rush has been weighed higher for us. And, uh, you know, our guy Mike Renner has compared him to Chris Jones, a guy that uh, Renner two years ago at this time was saying Chris Jones is a top five player in the draft class, which uh, he essentially has become similar size, similar measurables, and similar production. Uh, he's had a uh, strong run defense grade, Tillery, over the last two years. He had a game against Miami, I think it was 2017, where he just completely dominated the line of scrimmage. So you just kind of see that throughout his tape. Um, more than capable against the run, but certainly going to make his money, I think, getting after the quarterback. Steve, uh, this might be our last question for you here. Is there a cutoff point when you're compiling the board? Do you take in combine performance, pro day performances, because those are starting to wrap up? And how much do those aspects of it uh, weigh into formulating the final grades and the big board? Yeah, it's something that continues to evolve for us. We don't have, as much as we quantify everything at PFF, we don't have a perfect quantifiable way to hit each position with pro day data just yet. Um, although with the more our numbers guys look at it, they don't think it's completely relevant. I think I think it kind of shakes itself out when you have a guy like Ja'Kai Polite who was thought to be a potential first-round pick and, the whole NFL says, ah, wait a second, he's going to be more of a third or fourth rounder because he just had a disastrous uh, workout. It, it kind of feels like that wisdom of the crowds is, you know, not completely off on those types of guys. Um, so we factor it in a little bit. It's those disastrous performances or, you know, 4-7 for a corner um, that, that I think make us move guys down the board just a little bit when it comes to the pro day stuff. But then you have something like Ed Oliver who crushes his pro day, but that's expected. I mean, that was an expected outcome. He's the most agile interior defensive lineman I've ever seen. He moves like a safety. And when he did that at his pro day, it's like, all right, that's what we expected. So I think it's about uh, knowing what the expectations are going in. And if they're met or exceeded, or if they fall short, then adjusting accordingly based off of that. Fran, you say this a lot. Josh Norris, I know, says it's don't count it twice. That's right. Type of deal. So when you talk about expectations, uh, Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. Great stuff as always. Thank you very much for joining us here. Check out his work at PFF underscore Steve and at ProFootballFocus.com. Make sure to check out that top 50 big board. And what I also love about it is when there is a, a, a ranking that kind of pops out at you, they, they have an article that's right underneath it says, here's why we have Jerry Tillery here as a top 10. That's why Jonah Williams is our number one offensive lineman. They, and they go in-depth into the film to explain why they have their rankings, which I think is a great addition to that. Great stuff as always, Steve. Now we're going to get into our unofficial visit with Chris Lindstrom, the versatile offensive lineman from Boston College. The unofficial visit. 
Hello, Eagles fans. Chris McPherson, pleased to be joined by Chris Lindstrom, the pride of Boston College. And I don't know if I should call you guard, tackle. You've gone back and forth. You're even learning a little bit of center. How would you describe yourself as an offensive lineman? Uh, I'm primarily a guard, but I'm learning how to snap, and I I played tackle my junior year. So I'm just trying to be as versatile as I can and uh, try and add value to myself and add value to whatever team that I can be a part of. What was that experience like, going back and forth during your career from guard to tackle? Uh, the first two years I was at guard, and then uh, we needed someone to step out to tackle, and so I felt I felt comfortable doing it, and so I made that that jump, and then uh, we moved a younger guy out to tackle, and we needed to move back in, and so I, I just did that, and um, I was just excited to be a part of a great unit that we had at BC, and whatever hole that they needed me to fill, I was going to try and be my best at it. So Chris, your father played in the league. Yes. Yeah. So what kind of advice has he given you going through this process? Yeah, he's been a great role model for me and leading up to this process in terms of having to stay focused, stay determined on each and every day, not to overlook things. And uh, I think that's the biggest thing is just trying not to get up, caught up in the distractions of things and really stay focused on the priority that is football. At any point, did he try to steer you away from football or pretty much you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps? Yeah, he never uh, pushed me one way or the other. You know, he was kind of open to you can do what you want and he was a high school coach, though, so I kind of fell in love with the game early and was around it my whole life. And so, although he never really pushed me to, to, to play football or tell me not to, I always kind of fell in love with it. Pressure with him being your high school coach? No, I mean, I, I was thankful, again, like, he's a, he's a really good coach, and he was hard on me and he didn't give me special treatment, but then also he wouldn't carry that off the field. So it was a kind of a great relationship, and so I had a great coach on the field and an even better dad off the field. So pretty much he would be a, he's a big reason why you're here today. So yeah. in terms of giving someone a shout-out in yeah, your yeah. support system. For sure, yeah. He was a big reason in that. In terms of your play style, okay, yeah. you love to win in the phone booth. Mm-hmm. How did you develop that mentality in your career at Boston College? Uh, just for being an undersized guy. And so I had to learn that when I was younger. I had to do that just to really survive at that point at the ACC level. And so that was something that just carried on with me as I got bigger and stronger and, and learned more in the offense. And so that was kind of one trait or characteristic that stayed with me. When did you think the NFL was possible for you? Um, it was always a dream and a goal of mine. And then uh, this previous season on during Pro Day and people started to approach you, but it wasn't so much. And I was thankful for it. And it's always I wanted to be a part of it. But... Um, I focused this season, and I was just trying to trying to be the best player that I could be, and have the best team that we possibly could be, and everything kind of worked out, worked out great, and I'm excited for this opportunity. Was it difficult balancing the short-term enjoyment of your team and knowing it's your last year on campus versus trying to prepare for a possible career in the NFL? I don't think so. I mean, I spent my entire entire time at Boston College wanting to be the best, wanting to have the best team that Boston College has had, and wanting to have the best line, and then myself trying to be the best player and so um, I spent all my energy at BC trying to win games and I really like this was always a a dream and a goal but you kind of put that off and you focused on on today and that was that was trying to make Boston College a better place and I enjoyed my time there. All right Chris I'm gonna put you on the spot here your final question okay you can't go with Zach Allen who I'm sure you went against practice many times who was the best D lineman you faced in 2018? I think uh, Dexter Lawrence was probably the best guy I played all year Um, He's a very talented player at Clemson, and he's great hands, great size, and he he used good moves too. On top of that, so I think he was he had the whole package and was a great young player. That entire line was yeah, something yeah. to deal yeah, with for sure. The for sure, they were a great team. So Chris Lindstrom, prior Boston College, thank you very much for joining us here at PhiladelphiaEagles.com, and best of luck to you down the road. Thank you.
Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. All right there, so it's not the end of the Journey to the Draft podcast. It's a continuation of what's been a fun episode with a lot of great insight, a lot of great information here. Because I don't want to, you know, we can say it would save the best for last. That's right. So to speak here with the mailbag. So as we do each and every week, we kick off things with the question that come courtesy of Apple Podcasts, people who rate, review, leave your question there we will get to those first and uh we'll kick things off here with rage 114 from apple podcast uh great podcast great job including information and opinions on the rest of the nfc east really appreciates it thank you remember we were asked specifically one nfc east uh section there question what constitutes the difference between a left tackle and a right tackle the reason I ask is because there are so many great pass rushers coming from the left-hand side against the right tackle in recent years. As a result, the line between what makes a good left tackle and a right tackle are a little blurred. However, still hear you and Tony Pauline make a distinction between the two. In today's NFL, is there a difference between a left tackle and a right tackle? And I think we actually probably disagree a little with Tony. I would say on this. We, we, we do. I think Tony looks at it from an old school way, uh, and that's everybody's prerogative. They so want to look at it a certain way. What that old school. The old school prerogative was, you know, the point of view was, okay, the left tackle is your pass protector, your right tackle is your, your big mauler, your run blocker on the right side. And the reason for that was most offenses back in the day were right-handed, your tight end lined up on your right side, you were running to the right. That was, that was the idea. Uh, and the left tackle was the blind side of the quarterback, and that's what you wanted the, the good pass protector over there. That's not the. It hasn't been the case in the NFL for a long, long time. So um, you know the the importance of having a good pass protector because of the it being a pass heavy league is is. I mean that's evident. I mean you look at it, at any NFL schedule uh, and you can look at your right tackle. Oh, who's he going to line up against? Okay, so he's going to go against uh, Olivier Vernon, Demarcus Lawrence, Ryan Kerrigan, uh, Nick Bosa, uh, Joey Bosa, uh, Melvin Ingram, Justin Houston. I mean you, you Khalil, go, Mack. Khalil Mack lines up over there like. Every single Von week, Miller. there are guys called Val Miller's a great I, I, mean, I, I think of Lane Johnson. Right. Just think of Lane Johnson. Who he's got to face every single week. You need a good pass protector at right tackle. So I think that's out the window. What I will say, and I, the, this is the thing, guys are going to be comfortable at one spot over another. Correct. Some guys have the ability to flip back and forth, and that's great. You, lo- you love that. But some guy, So when you look at Jawan Taylor, he's got two starts in his career at left tackle. Everything, Every other snap has come at right tackle. He's a, he's a right tackle. You look at some guys, have only, Andre Dillard has only played left tackle his entire career. If you have a hole at right tackle and you'll say, oh, now you're saying it's a little bit of a projection. Either you're going to move Andre Dillard to a spot that he's never done before. And, I, and I've talked with Alfie. I remember we had uh, Evan Mathis back on the, uh, the Eagles Insider podcast back, back in the, in the day. day. yeah. And we, I remember asking him about that because remember his first year, he was like bouncing back and forth between this was the, the Dream, Dream Team yeah. summer. Between left guard, right guard, right tackle, because there were injuries, he was, and he said by far the hardest thing going from tackle to guard is easy. So you got to change your setup a little bit and all that. But going from left to right is really really hard because everything that you're doing, you have to flip it. So everything with your right, with your right foot, your right hand, switch it over to your left foot, your left hand. All of your weight balance, everything that you're pushing off of, everything that you're doing, you have to put it in reverse. So if you've never done it. It, it takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of time to get used to it. So that's why you often want to see, all right, let's put guys in a position where they, if they're going to win early, if they're going to succeed early, we want them to do something that they're used to doing. So I look at a guy like Jawan Taylor, and I say, okay, he's always been a right tackle. 
leave him at right tackle. Jonah Williams has experience at both sides. He's got, he started one full season at right tackle. He's done two last two at left tackle. You feel like, okay, if I've got a hole, he could do either. But I, I, that's the big, that's, to me, that's the big difference between right and left side at this point. Which is why I'm intrigued to see how does Isaac Sayamalo play for the Eagles this season because he can focus on being the left guard. It's not trying to play right tackle and left guard and right guard and move around and have right. that versatility. It's, he pretty much can fixate in center as well. He can fixate at that left guard position and be set there. And that's the thing also with center real quickly before we move yeah. to the next one is you know with center – I mean, if you've never done it before, that's the thing what everyone says with, oh, Jonah Williams, he might be a better center. All right, well, I mean, he's never had to, like, put his head down and, like, snap the ball and worry about a 320-pound defensive tackle right on top of him that he's got to block immediately. I mean, that's, that's a learned skill. That Who, takes time to, to be able to develop. Who's the Bears center? Cody Whitehair. Yes, same thing. Yeah, it was. It was, and uh, that I mean, it was it, a projection. It, it was a projection. But you do worked. you do see it? Yeah, I mean, Mitch Morse uh, did it for the Chiefs. You know, yeah. D- uh, Doug Peterson was on staff in Kansas City. They took Mitch Morse from Missouri a few years ago. He was a second round pick, left tackle for the Tigers. And they said, "Oh, we like him at center," and he was a starter. And he and he took it to like a duck to water, and it was great. Um, doesn't always work that way. All right, next question here again from Apple Podcast. Richard delivers this one: Savage, Darnell Savage, or Juan Thornhill for the Eagles? I'm thinking for one day when Malcolm Jenkins hangs him up. I think when you look at those two guys, you look at them a little bit differently. You know, you look at Thornhill as a player. Yeah, he's the, both of them have cornerback traits, right? I mean, Savage, uh, there was a report. I forget who, who had put it out. Uh, I don't want to misattribute it. But someone had said that some teams are looking at Savage as a corner. Um, really? Okay. Yeah, so I, he's got that skill set. Juan Thornhill obviously spent the first three years of his career at corner. There was talk about him moving to safety, even going back to his sophomore year. But the first three years, he was a corner, free safety this past year. But I think ultimately you look at them a little bit differently. I think with Savage, he's, to me, like, all right, you, you definitely like him as a sub-package player. You, know, like, you have that ability to play in the slot. Can he play, where is he best? Is he best near the line of scrimmage? Is he best in the back end on the post? I think when you look at Juan Thornhill, He's going to be a great post player, for, I think, for a long time. So I think ultimately it comes down to how you view them. I don't think they, they're both – I don't think it's apples to apples when you compare those no. two players. All right. So, again, if you have not already submitted your questions on the Apple Podcast, put them there now, and we'll get to those first in next week's episode. So uh, we got a transition here. You know, you, you made the call to action for I everyone did. on social media, on Twitter, at FW3, to uh, send in questions. So – you get to play. You get to play host now. That's right. All right. So uh, Joshua V. Kid asks, "Why is David Long, the Michigan corner, flying under the radar given his combine numbers? And that I thought he was one of the best corners in one of the best defenses in college football." It's a good question. Okay. I mean, da- question. David Long tested very well at the combine, um, and it was a, a pretty good workout overall. Nothing. He wasn't like lights out across the board, but overall, I thought he did a solid job. I think when you look at David Long. He's a guy that I, I agree with you. He's underrated in this class. I mean, he's a guy that this corner class is not great. It's not a great group of corners. It's der- certainly one of the weaker positions in this class. But overall, when you look at David Long and his the, the big knock on him is going to be his size. You know, does he have the size and speed to be able to hold up on the outside? But he's quick. He's tough. He's instinctive. I think he's got inside-outside versatility. So to me, uh, David Long, a very interesting player. All right. So next question, uh, I'll, I'll just dig into your, uh, right. your mentions here. Uh, at Poe Wing, P-O-E-W-I-N-G on Twitter. Okay. What's going on with Ed Oliver? He's got the best tape. He compares to Aaron Donald. He should be a consensus top five, 
What's going on? Well, I think the, the big thing, number one, was, uh, look, size is going to be an issue, right? I mean, not for, he's not going to be for everybody. No. Uh, at 280 pounds, I mean, he's not going to be for every team. And not just the weight. To me, the arm length is the other big thing because that can be a, uh, a disqualifier for certain teams. His arm length is, is very, very short. And we, we can all roll our eyes about, oh, is that important? Is that... That's, that is an important trait for, uh, for interior defensive linemen. And for teams looking at it, it's like, all right, I've got Christian Wilkins versus Ed Oliver. If one guy is disqualified because of the arm length, they're going to go Christian Wilkins if they've got those yeah. guys too similarly rated. So uh, that the size is one aspect of it. The production wasn't always there in terms of the level that they would have wanted. He had a little bit of an injury issue this past season. Um, you know, there's like I said, it's what we talked about earlier with Sean Gary. Someone's going to fall. Like it, it could be at Oliver. Ed Oliver could go like eight. I don't even know who's picking eight overall. He could go eight overall, and I wouldn't blink an eye. He could go twenty-four. Yeah, I wouldn't. And I wouldn't blink an eye either. He's one of those guys. I think is going to go somewhere in that range. Yeah, I think Detroit has the eighth pick in this year's draft. But nonetheless, he's probably not going to go to Detroit. No. I don't think he fits Detroit. But, but that's a great example. Like, yeah, he, he's not. He doesn't fit he's not Detroit for everyone. Yeah. The thing is, because he declared so early, because he declared for the two thousand nineteen draft, you know, before the two thousand eighteen season started. Everyone poked holes, and I, you've brought this up on the podcast before. Everyone has scrutinized his game, and he's been under the microscope so much more that you know all of his flaws. Yeah, and it's almost like you pay more attention to those flaws at this point than what he does very well. Whereas the other guys who are new to the draft class, you're like, you're just seeing all the good things about them. You're like, oh man, he can do this, that, and the other. They haven't had as much time to really dissect them to get to the point where you're nitpicking every little thing with them. And not, again, size and arm like those aren't little things to nitpick, but I feel like that he has been scrutinized more than any draft pick prospect in this, in this class. And it wasn't until last week at his pro day when he finally got that big like shot in the arm, a positive buzz, right? Yes. Because he didn't do a full workout at the combine. True. He wasn't at the senior bowl or anything, obviously. Uh, he didn't have to officially declare for the draft because he'd already done it. Yeah. His senior year, he ended up with injury. He had that thing with the, the incident with the coach on the sideline. Yep. I mean, there's a, all these negative things chipping away at Oliver True. and his, you know, pr- his stock, quote-unquote. But I think when you look at him overall, guy's a, a hell of a football player. All right, next question here comes from at random Frank P. Uh, thinks that Daryl Henderson – Seems like the perfect fit for this offense. Um, you know, just how we take, take him day two or stick with the current roster. Again, we say running back, that, you know, I still think you definitely can add at that position, even though they got Jordan Howard. But your thoughts on just Daryl Henderson as a prospect? Overall. Yeah, no idea, you know, if they're going to take him in day two or stick with what they've got. But I think when you look at Daryl Henderson, you know, his game's based on speed. I mean, he's got the ability to take it the distance anytime he touches the football. Really, really good on perimeter runs. Uh, he's good in the passing game as well. Can do a lot of different things for you out of the backfield in that respect. Um, so really a guy that's been productive as well in the AAC. So, the, you know, this is a player that is very, very intriguing. I think there are flashes uh, of guys that we've seen in the last Last few years, a Melvin Gordon or a Dalvin Cook. Mm-hmm. I mean, those kind of players. So, I think when you're looking at Daryl Henderson, is he the to the quality of Dalvin Cook and, and Melvin uh, and, and Melvin Gordon? Probably not. You know, the, in terms of that quality of prospect, but the flashes, the play style, he's that kind of a player. All right, okay, time to get to like one or two more here. Yeah. Uh, at Richutes, uh, Anthony Rashuti on Twitter. We kind of went through this one. I just want to acknowledge a question: What's the best safety fit for the Eagles? We've talked about Donald Savage, Chauncey Gardner Johnson, and Juan Thornhill. Uh, let's go a little uh, quarterback question here from okay. at T Manic Twenty One, good friend of our of the pod. Uh, for a quarterback like Dwayne Haskins, do you think his deeper throw placement improves as he gains more experience, like a junior going into his senior year? Many have said that accuracy does not improve at the next level, but with his smaller sample size, 
is there a chance it could develop? Potentially, and I, and I think ultimately you're also looking at what he was asked to do with that Ohio State offense. I mean, it was a, I don't want to say it was a very well-scripted, highly-schemed offense, but you know, they, ran, they ran a lot of the same plays over and over and over again. I mean, it was a, a high-volume offense uh, in the passing game. They, you know, they did um, you know, a lot of the mesh stuff, the screen stuff. I mean, it, was, it was not an attacking down-the-field offense. Now, you can ask. Was that because of Dwayne Haskins, or was that just because of the way they wanted to play? Typically, that's how they've played over the last few years. I don't know how similarly they viewed both he and JT Barrett's skill sets. They may have said, all right, we're going to just kind of sub him in, and he's going to do exactly all the same same things uh, that JT did over the last few years. But I think when you look at Haskins, he can make all the throws. I mean, he's got the arm talent. I don't think that's going to be a question at all. Uh, I think ultimately, yeah, you're hoping that his best football is ahead of him. I never thought that accuracy was like a, a big issue with him watching. I, I don't know what the numbers say and uh, you know and things like that. You've seen the tape, though. Yeah, I've, no, I've never, I've, uh, I've never, uh, I've never thought that accuracy was a, a big, big deal. All right, uh, last question here. Our good friend Spartan Hound at CLE underscore Spartans on Twitter. How do you rank the big slot receivers? In this year's draft class, mm. uh, Lil Jordan Humphrey, Tyree Brady, Jacoby Myers, those players. And if, uh, I'll let you talk about who are some of your favorites from that group, and then we'll get to a follow-up. Yeah, I think, to me, if I'm looking at that, I, I don't know if I would necessarily – uh, say that Tyree Brady is a, a big slot. I do yeah. think that he can win on the outside. Um, I, I would say Tyree Brady is my, probably my favorite of those three guys, and I would agree that I do think Jacoby Myers and Lil Jordan Humphrey, who uh, is actually, you know, there's some tight end buzz about Lil Jordan Humphrey, okay. about him making the move to, to kind of a move tight end, um, which is kind of, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other when you're talking about big slots. But I think uh, ultimately, I think I might stack it. Brady, Myers, Humphrey, probably in that order. But all three guys, I think uh, you can kind of look at in that role. I do like Brady the most. Is there anyone outside of the three he brought up that? Ooh. Well, I mean, mind, so. if you're talking like big slot, I yes. mean, AJ, AJ Brown is cream of the crop there. I mean, that's he spent most of his time on the inside, uh, you know, solid route runner on the inside, but really, really good after the catch, really competitive with the ball in his hands, uh, does have the athletic profile that you're looking for. So AJ Brown, to me, I mean, he's the, the guy I comped him to was Jarvis Landry, who obviously has made a living being that kind of guy uh, in the NFL. Uh, and the follow-up question, a good one, are those players, those big, he calls them the groove, the big slot receivers, are they devalued compared to traditional slot receivers hmm. in this class? Well, I would say uh, go check out the Eagle uh, Eye Eagle in the Sky podcast I did with Greg Cosell over uh, a couple weeks ago at the, at the scouting combine. We talked about the value of big receivers in today's NFL, and I think that's a, that's a very valid question. Is uh, you know what is the can you? To me, I think when you're looking at big slots, you can find big slots in every draft. So I think that's really what it comes down. That's why you typically don't see one go very, very high, and I think that's why people will knock, oh, he's just a slot guy, um, you know, is that you can get a guy that can play that kind of role. Now, a guy like A.J. Brown doesn't always come out. A guy like Jarvis Landry doesn't always come out. So there, there are layers to that. But, um, yeah, I would say that a bigger slot player is probably not as valuable from a consensus, a league-wide point of view. Every team's going to view it differently. But I would say that's, that's probably fair. It, it goes, uh, Great point there. I think it goes to why the Eagles, because of the way that Chip Kelly had the offense, valued a Jordan Exactly, Matthews. right. So that's why he was worth a second-round pick. But – not every team is going to view it no question. as utilizing those resources or needing to use that draft capital at that position. Yep. So great questions. As always, again, make sure to rate, review, 
and comment wherever you listen to our podcast. Again, special thanks to Melissa Kelly for handling things behind the scenes for us once again. And a shout-out to our guest Tony Pauline from DraftAnalyst.com and Steve Palazzolo from Pro Football Focus. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Journey to Draft podcast. For Fran Duffy, I'm Chris McPherson. Have a great Eagles Day, everyone.